It's the year 1980, and in this episode, coverage of the creative computing and compute magazines through the first half of 1980, and a review of the game Super Breakout by Atari. Also, feedback including a Star Raiders unboxing, music using the Pokechip, display list interrupts, hex editors, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, and the development of the Breakout arcade game, and I sponsor a contest at Ferg's 2600 Game by Game Podcast. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode two. Welcome to 1980. This is episode two of the Player Missile Podcast, where I cover Atari 8-bit games and magazines. So I'm updating my plan again. I think I'm on my new, new, new plan by now, but I'm pretty sure this is the new, new, new plan that will be the final new, new, new plan. So as I said in the last episode, uh, covering all the magazines of 1979 in a single show was too much. So I'm gonna do it again, and again next episode. But after that, starting in 1981, I'm going to focus on a single month per episode. So at most, there'll be four magazines until I think September 83 is the first time I'll have five magazines in a single episode. And even four magazine only occurs twice in 1981 and only three times in 82. And the software gets much much more interesting in 1981. In 1980, their st- software is still pretty scarce because Atari didn't release a lot of developer documentation, so there really aren't many games to choose from. The Atari coverage in the magazines is still scarce in 1980 as well. There are only 25 significant references in 18 magazine issues in 1980. So this episode is going to be about the first half of 1980 and the game Super Breakout. The next episode is Space Invaders and the second half of 1980. And then episode four, I'll start with the month-by-month coverage. So I'm going to really breeze through the magazine coverage this time and next, and then start to focus more on the significant Atari stories in the magazines for the 1981 episodes. So a couple corrections from last episode. When talking about the 800 computers, I said there were 64k of RAM. Actually, the 4800 could only address 48k of RAM. The top 16k was ROM. And the 400 even initially shipped with only 8k of RAM, and the 800 had 16k. So what I meant was there was 64k of addressable space in the 6502 processor. It's an 8-bit processor that has 16 bits of addressable space. 16 bits means 2 to the 16th power, which is 65,000 foot 536. Is that right? So that's the number of bytes it can address without extra tricks. And they got around some of the limitations by doing bank switching later on, so they'd switch out 16k blocks of RAM.、Um, the XLs when they get released had RAM underneath the ROM, so you could actually use the full 64k of RAM. Another correction about Warner and Nolan Bushnell: Warner actually bought Atari in '76 when Bushnell needed funds,、uh, and Bushnell was actually not around. When the 800 was released, he was forced out as CEO in November of '78, and then left in all capacities at Atari at,、uh, in January of '79. Yeah. So before I get into the feedback, I just want to say I have a bit of a cold, and so I apologize for 
little raspy, scratchy voice. Wouldn't you know it, the one day I had time to free to record the podcast, I get a cold. Never really had to think about my voice before doing anything. It's not like typing. You can always type when you have a cold. You don't even, I don't even think about that. So feedback, uh, Ferg on the 2600 Game by Game mentioned the podcast in his episode 68. Yeah, if you enjoy my podcast here about the Atari 8-bits, you should also listen to Ferg's show, because the 2600 was a direct precursor to the 800, and I'll talk about this in more detail in a future episode, but the 800 was originally conceived to be the replacement for the 2600. The 2600 came out in 76, I think? Um, and Atari imagined it would have a two- to three-year shelf life, which is funny because it remained in, remained in production for almost 15 years. But Atari immediately started thinking about a successor, and the hardware in the 800 is a direct result of that design. And as I've learned more about the GTIA and Antic processors in the 800, there really is a bit of the 2600 still in the in the 800. I didn't know this until doing some research recently, but there's even a technique on the 8-bits to implement drawing kernels like you have to do on the 2600. Related to that is a great book called Racing the Beam, which is all about designing 2600 games. And... As a bit of cross-podcast promotion here, I'm going to be sponsoring a contest on Ferg's 2600 Game by Game podcast, where I'm going to give away a copy of Racing the Beam through his podcast. Ferg's going to have all the details in his next episode, so be sure to tune into his podcast and we'll, we'll get this contest going. Some more feedback from friend of the show, Rick Keen. He sent an email saying, thanks for the link about the ST cover. It was fun pinning those back then. He says, I love the podcast, which makes me wish I had bought an Atari 8-bit back then instead of a Commodore 64. I love the Commodore, but your podcast is making me realize I may have missed out on something. I may have to find one in good shape to play with. The Star Raiders review was excellent. I learned a few things I can apply when playing it on the 5200, so I'm looking forward to future reviews. Since I'm one of the people that reads 30-year-old video game and computer magazines for nostalgic reasons, I enjoyed the magazine segment. From a cultural, cultural point of view, it's interesting to see how far we've come technically and socially. I really appreciate the hard work it must take to do this. Thanks. Well, thank you, Rick. Thanks for writing in. You know, as I said before, I don't think I ever actually played with the Commodore 64 at all. I'm kind of curious to find out more of the differences about the Commodore 64. As I go, I might look into that and maybe compare some games on the 64 to the 8-bits. Rick also sent me a link to some of the artwork that he's done, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Got an email from Justin Knight over in the UK. He said, I would just like to congratulate you on producing your first Atari podcast. I thought the Player Missile Podcast Zero was excellent. I'm definitely going to be a regular listener. I particularly like the fact that Player Missile is going to be a niche podcast about games and magazines, and so not in direct competition with Antic, the Atari 8-bit podcast, which I've also downloaded since the very beginning. I found the content of your podcast gripping and extremely interesting. As a former 1980-1991 Atari 8-bit owner, who returned to the 400-800XE computers a few years ago. Yeah, I am. I definitely don't want to be in competition with, with Antic. I think there's plenty of stuff that we can do that is separate and you know not stomping on each other's toes. And hopefully we'll be able to do some crossover stuff at some point. Justin goes on to say that he never had a disk drive, so he always put his games on cassette or ROM cartridge. And then not having disk drive, he missed out on some of the the strategy games that really took a lot of disk access. Yeah, that would definitely be a different experience without a disk drive. As he said, you know, missing some of the strategy games, games with 
really big areas, you know, like Ultima or or Omnitrans Universe, and not to mention the loading times of the cassette. So I think that would probably force me to get a lot more ROM cartridges. Justin says another aspect of the Atari 8-bit computing that I have a great interest in is the listening to the Atari Music and the Atari SAP Music Archive website. And as an aside, I think I'm going to start featuring a little bit of that. So if you have any SAP Music or know of some that you'd recommend, please let me know. I'm going to start closing out the show with some SAP tracks. And also, do you pronounce it SAP or is it SAP? Let me know what the correct way to pronounce it is. And he says, good luck with the Amazing Player Missile Podcast, and I look forward to downloading Podcast 1 from the website in a few months. He says, thanks for all your hard work, and I hope the Player Missile Podcast will be around for a long time. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, I'm planning on continuing until I get through the 80s, at least. I think the podcast will be a lot less work once I start focusing on single months. It's just been it's just taken a long time to go through all these magazine episodes, and I'm getting kind of sick of that part. So once I can focus on just you know two or three magazines per episode, I think it'll be a little bit less daunting for me. I got some more feedback from Mike Portuizi. He said, Hello, I'm a subscriber to the Player Missile Podcast. I found you through Antic, and I'm enjoying your podcast. I grew up with an Atari 800 in high school back in the early 80s, and I sold an article to Compute Magazine to get cash to afford a 1050 disk drive. So Compute was a big part of my hobby back then. It was the best source of technical how-to information on programming the Atari 8-bits, and they had some nice typing games. The other magazine I really followed and enjoyed was Creative Computing, the Outpost Atari column, headed by David and Sandy Small, and later by John J. Anderson, offers it some really great Atari-related material. He says, keep up the good work with the podcast, I'll keep listening. So thanks, Michael. Yeah, uh, Michael and I have emailed him a couple times, and he's been published not only in Compute, but in Creative Computing. He also had a program published in one of the Compute Best Of books, a program called Superplot. We can't seem to find a copy electronically, but we're going to... See if we can do that, and I'm, I hope to feature his program in a future episode. I'll include a link to it in the show notes now, and then hopefully we can get an electronic copy at some point and feature it in a future episode. So also, if any of you other listeners have had any articles published, I'd certainly be interested in talking to you. The magazines are a big part of this podcast, and I always sort of dreamed to be a published author and never got a chance to. I submitted a few things, but you know nothing ever came out of it. So if you do, if you have been published in one of the magazines, please let me know. I'd certainly like to talk to you. Over on Twitter, I had the coolest feedback. Twitter user BlueBlue had a Star Raiders unboxing. He posted a picture of Star Raiders, the cartridge, the manual, and played Star Raiders for the very first time. Sitting next to a little tablet had a picture of the Player Missile Podcast graphic. Yeah, that was extremely cool. Also on Twitter, I tweeted an image of a binary view of the Space Invaders ROM image back when I thought this episode was going to be about Space Invaders. I'm working on this hex editor just because there's no reason to, so I am. But I got two quick retweets, and I was all excited, you know, hey, getting traction. But oddly, there weren't anyone who follows me and nobody that I knew had retweeted this or anything. So I checked their profiles, and it turns out they're bot accounts specializing in something called binary options trading. So apparently they're scanning the Twitterverse for the word binary. So, yep, they cut my ego right down to size. So now we'll get into the magazine section of the podcast. So the first issue we'll look at is Compute Number 2, which is a January-February 1980 issue. So the cover is a line art of a Atari and a pet sliced in half. The left half's Atari, and the right half is a pet. And the first story about the Atari is, uh, it says, Atari arrives. Since it's been almost a year since the Atari 400-800 were announced, 
and I can assure you they do indeed exist, for I have used both models myself and enjoyed them very much. The system seems to be the start of a whole new generation of computers. But at this point in early 80, there still wasn't a, a big volume of computers shipped. I think, in fact, through all of 1980, only 30,000 8-bits had been shipped. I'll have to look at that and do find that number, but it's something on that order, I think. Later on, there's an article called The Ouch in Atari Basic, which is a comparison of Pet Basic and Atari Basic. And it kind of lists some of the faults of Atari Basic, where the error numbers instead of messages, no user-defined functions, uh, the break key doesn't turn off the sound, which I do remember. I remember having a tone, and you have to hit the reset button in order to get the tone to stop. And there's also another article about Basic, uh, Atari Basic Part 2, which is continuing the overview of the Basic from the Fall 79 issue. But that's about it for that compute. In January, the Creative Computing Volume 6 Number 1 was released. It has no Atari references, but there is an interview with Donald Newth, who talks tech and other Newthian things. Interestingly, he also talks about the, the set of books called The Art of Computer Programming. Three of the Plan 7 volumes set are available at this point in 1980, and he was asked how long it would take him to do the other four books, and he said he expected to be done three years after he starts. He was planning on starting in April of 81, so he'd planned on being done in April of 84. And as it stands today, I think parts of Volume 4 have just been released. So he took a little time off. The next Creative Computing, uh, Volume 6, Number 2, in February, there's an Atari ad on the inside front cover, but no Atari references. There is an article about Intelligent Computer Games by David Levy, and it's the same David Levy I mentioned in Episode 1, where he bet the leading AI researchers that he could beat any chess program they designed and the deadline expired, and he won 1,000 uh, UK pounds. So it's the first in a series of articles about the principles of programming games, and it's, this article is more about strategy and turn-by-turn -turn games. Heading to March, Computes Issue Number 3 came out, where it's a, it has a green line art drawing on the, on the cover, where it's a monitor kind of sliced into quarters, and different text on each of the quarters, and the, the right top quarter is Star Raiders. The issue does include a review of Star Raiders, so obviously I should have read ahead. <laughs> so in its review it says, Do take time to read the manual before playing the game. You can have much more fun playing if you know how to cope with all the features. It says, This game is addictive. Two hours can slip by while you're absorbed in the game without any awareness of passing of time, except for star dates. And finally it says, If you relinquish your place at the helm to someone else, be prepared to wait a long time before reclaiming it. And there's also an interview with Doug Neubauer, who says he wasn't upset with the with not getting royalties for the game. He says, I almost would have done it for nothing, to tell you the truth. Then he was asked if he was a good player, and he said, uh, You won't master it in a week. I played it since the beginning and finally made it to the top rank, Star Commander 1, after six months. There's another article in the magazine about the American Sign Language alphabet on a pet, which doesn't have anything to do with the Atari, but... I took a little bit of sign language, so I can sign a few things, but I'm not <laughs> definitely not a good fingerspeller, so I need a lot of practice with the ASL alphabet. There's a little blurb about Atari announcing the exclusive license of Space Invaders, which we'll get to in the next episode of the podcast. There's a review of the Atari basketball game for the 8-bits, and there's a review of the Atari 810 disk drive. Looks like, at this point, it was DOS 1.0 being shipped with a drive, and their big complaint was not with the drive itself, because they said it was easy to get set up, just plug in the two cords, 
turn it on, and then you're up and running. But their complaint was with the with DOS itself, with the use of four, the 8.3 file names and only uppercase. And they descri- they compared it to the PET, which has both upper and lowercase and other symbols allowable in the file file names. So the March Creative Computing, the feature is Intelligent Games, but there's nothing Atari-specific, so I think we'll skip this one. The April issue of Creative Computing is the famous April Fool's issue. On the cover is this stylized Mona Lisa uh, typing on a computer. And the neat thing about this issue is if you flip it over, the back cover is printed upside down with the title, Dr. Kilobyte's Creative, Popular, Personal, Recreational, Microcomputer Data Interface World Journal in the style of the various computer magazines that they're parodying. So there's about 60 pages printed upside down so the magazine could be displayed with the back cover posing as the front cover. And they put a lot of work into it. There's lots of articles. There's a few real advertisements, including the ubiquitous Ohio Scientific Computer, sprinkled in with lots of fake ones, and the real ones seem to be the ones that have the Circle the Reader Service Card announcements on them. Reading it today, I found all these fake articles more silly than hilarious like using a crowbar to pry out the motherboard, or to fix the floppy drive uh, seek errors by using sandpaper. But it's hard to get your mindset back to that time when the idea of fixing a floppy drive with that, you know, fixing it with a sandpaper or a big magnet get people actually wondering about it. There was also a advertisement for this adventure game to type in. It was listed in Fortran in one and a half pages, and so I was kind of curious to see what that would be like. I don't generally admit to knowing Fortran, but I actually do. <laughs> I don't put that on my resume anymore. But so I thought I'd try to figure it out and see what the program was like. But I I think sort of as a joke, they shrunk it down so much that you couldn't actually read the text. So I think it wasn't legible on purpose. In the real section of the magazine, there was an article about Atari in perspective, the Atari 800 versus the PET. So basically, it was about PET versus Atari Basic, and kind of the point was that the PET was near the end and the Atari was still new. But other than that, there really wasn't a lot of Atari stuff in this magazine. There were some discount ads for the Atari. The 800 was showing for 849 and the 400 was listing for $493. So May of 1980, Computes issue number 4 came out. The cover was a pet with 80-column text on the screen. There were some more sales ads for the Atari. The 800 was listed for 875 The 400 was listed for 515 And the 810 disk drive, this is hard to believe how expensive they were back then. But the A10 disk drive was listed for $565, which is, yeah, that's $1,600 in today's dollars. There's yet another article about Atari Basic. They seem to have a big thing about comparing Atari Basic with Pet Basic. Another article is the consumer computer comparing Atari Chess versus TRS-80 Sargon II. And matching up computer chess programs is interesting. I don't know if you've seen the Retro Computing Roundtable Challenge where... Earl Evans and Carrington Vanston matched up uh, Commodore 64 versus an Apple II, but I'll cl- include a link to that in the show notes. So they're comparing Atari Chess with the joystick input to the keyboard input for the Sargon on the TR-80. They said both played pretty aggressively, and two matches, each of the program won one of them. And highlighting the aggressiveness, they said in the second game they traded queens after eight moves. The Atari Gazette portion of the magazine includes some technical info about how to optimize space in your basic program, but I think it's mostly related to saving out to tape, so really not that useful in today's emulated world. Next magazine is uh, Creative Computing, Volume 6, Number 5, for May. 
they talk about computer-aided model rocketry design, which I thought was interesting. At the most recent Kansas Fest, there was, a I think, a father and son team who brought a some, I don't, I don't know the details, something about an Apple, con- Apple II-controlled model rocket launcher. And there's another article on the continuing series of intelligent computer games by uh, Levy. But nothing real Atari-specific, so we'll skip on to the next issue, which is Creative Computing, Volume 6, Number 6, in June. There's an article called The Atari Machine, which is a glowing review of the capabilities of the system. They describe Star Raiders and just being wowed, but stunned that Atari is reticent about giving out technical details. They say, The Atari Machine is the most extraordinary computer graphics box ever made, and Star Raiders is its virtuoso demonstration game. There's just one problem, they won't tell you how to program it. That's right, you can buy an Atari computer and they won't give you instructions on how to work it. So if you want to make a federal case out of it, you can probably get the inside data in about three years for a quarter of a million dollars in legal costs. However, there's a faster way. The hacker's race is on. Who can figure it out first? Even if nobody violates Atari's elaborate security, I'll wager most or all the secrets will be out by the end of 1980. Probably including secrets that the Atari people didn't know existed. Because there's nothing like a real challenge to delight a computer hacker. And this is a real challenge. Again, this is a theme I'd come back to, that the reluctance of Atari to release the developer documentation really cost them in this early year, you know, in 1980. By 1981, people were really starting from scratch still. And I think because it didn't really allow them to ramp up. Because we'll see in the 1981 games, they're still pretty primitive. It's not till we get into 92 that we see some of the really advanced games or games that start to use more of the capabilities. And by this time, we're starting to get, almost get into the Commodore 64 era. So yeah, I think Atari really missed the boat by keeping this under the wraps for so long. But we'll talk about more of this when we get into 1981. There's another article called Inside Space Invaders that we'll discuss next, next episode. Yeah, originally I intended to do Space Invaders in this episode and cover all of 1980 in a single episode. But some stuff has come up and I may be able to do some I may have some interesting stuff for next episode, so I decided to push Space Invaders back, split up 1980 into two episodes, and I don't know, we'll see. Hopefully I'll have some fun stuff for next episode. There's one more article of interest here, it's the Outpost Atari column, and again, there's a nice, a nice review of Star Raiders. So Star Raiders really was the killer app for the Atari 8-bits at this early stage. And with that, we're done with the magazines for this part of 1980. Next episode, we'll do the remaining magazines of 1980 and get into the Space Invaders review. Now it's time for the review of Super Breakout. Super Breakout was published by Atari, and I could not find out who the author was. Super Breakout is based on the arcade game Super Breakout, which was designed by Ed Logg, the same guy who did Asteroids. The Super Breakout arcade game uses a 6502 microprocessor, so it can be emulated in MAME. The arcade game was based on an older arcade game, Breakout, designed in part by Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. The original Breakout arcade game didn't use a microprocessor, it used discrete logic chips, so it can't be emulated in MAME. So Ferg and his 2600 Game by Game podcast reviewed Breakout, uh, in episode 26, that game was by Brad Stewart, and Super Breakout for the 2600 was by Nick Turner, and Ferg reviewed that in episode 6. 
So the story behind the original arcade game is pretty interesting. So Nolan Bushnell wanted a single-player version of a Pong-style game. And this was in the pre-CPU days, you know, so stuff was designed using discrete logic and other sorts of hardware that I have no idea how it works. So Steve Wozniak had designed a version of Pong that used about 30 or so chips, and Bushnell remembered that Jobs had worked with Woz in the past, and that Atari's current games were using like 150 or more discrete logic chips. And in order to prove the manufacturing design, Bushnell wanted as few chips as possible. So he offered a $100 bonus per chip removed from the final design. Woz was still working at Hewlett Packard at the time, so Jobs recruited him, promising a 50-50 split of the bonus. Jobs put on them a self-imposed deadline of four days because he had travel for some reason. So Woz did the design, and Jobs did the breadboarding and testing. All the time, Woz was still working at Hewlett Packard, his day job. So he worked on breakout at night, and apparently managed to keep catch a nap occasionally. He got it down to 44 chips. Jobs got a $5,000 bonus, but told Waz that it was a $700 bonus, and gave Waz his 50%, which is 350 bucks. Al Alcorn, looking at the design, was quoted as saying, it was remarkable, a tour de force. It was so minimized, though, that nobody else could build it. Nobody could understand what Waz had done, but Waz. It was this brilliant piece of engineering, but just unproducible. So the game sat around and languished in the lab, and eventually redesigned by another Atari engineer, but it took uh, 100 chips. And Watts is remarkable that he wasn't more upset about the money. On his own website, he even says that he was hurt in later years, but it was a long time ago, and he preferred to get away from it. He said Steve had always been a good friend to me in more ways than just palling around. It's so ancient that maybe it didn't happen, and maybe Atari people said that it did and wrote it or wrong in their own memories. If there was some dishonesty, I'm over that. Who hasn't done some things that would be considered bad anyway? I doubt I'd find such a person interesting. Waz is a really cool guy. And he shows up at Kansas Fest occasionally, apparently, too. So Super Breakout was an 8K cartridge. Although I looked at it in a hex editor, this crazy hex editor that I'm building for no particular reason. And it seems like the game logic is less than 4K, and there's no sprites to speak of since they're all rectangular blocks. So maybe 8K was the minimum possible cartridge size. So on the 2600, 2K cartridges are the standard, and 4K was a big deal. And Asteroids, when it hit in 1981, had a huge 8K cartridge. So Super Breakout is a 1979 game, actually, so maybe 8K was as small as they could go. Uh, maybe they just didn't even have a, the ability to put a 4K ROM chip in there. Because clearly they were planning for the future on the 800. So I didn't find a manual for the 8-bit version, but the 5200 version is almost identical. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. But really, this doesn't need any instructions for the gameplay itself. These early games are targeting unfamiliar audiences, and they are designed to be able to be picked up and played. You take a look at Pong. The instructions for Pong are as simple as avoid missing ball for hide score. And there's not much more to break out than adding the fact that you are trying to hit bricks for points. So there are four game variations in the cartridge. There's Breakout, Progressive, Double, and Cavity. So all games have the same border. There's green boundaries on the left, top, and right of the playing area, where the left and right borders are not quite pushed out to the left and right edges of the screen. In the top third of the playing area, there are grids of bricks. There are eight rows of 14 bricks, but the spacing of the rows can vary depending on the game variation, which I'll describe in a minute. There's a small vertical area between the green boundaries and the sides of the screen. And this 
left side empty space, there's a little vertical text that indicates the number of serves you've used. And in all game, you get five serves. When you serve, a little 2x2 two two pixel ball is released from the center of the screen at some angle. Uh, never that close to vertical, though. Uh, the closest it gets to straight down is maybe 15 degrees or so. So you control a horizontal line at the bottom of the screen called the paddle, which moves left and right. And so your object is to deflect the ball off the paddle back up in order to hit all the bricks above you. So each time the ball hits a brick, that brick gets removed and the ball is deflected back down to you at the mirrored angle. At the start of the game, the paddle is the same width as two of the bricks. And then once you hit the ceiling with the ball, the paddle then shrinks to the width of a single brick. When you miss the ball, the paddle goes back to full width, and then of course till it hits the ceiling again. So if you can imagine the width of the paddle being broken up into four sections, the angle that the ball rebounds off the paddle depends on which section the ball hits. So in general, hitting the center sections results in a more vertical shot, and the edges are tilted up away from the vertical. Those angles change every four hits, and there's a diagram in the 5200 manual that it seems to show the same angles used in the 8-bit version. So I didn't really find much difference except for the third set of four hits. Then it becomes a really sweeping hit, so every time it hits the paddle, it bounces off the side walls a couple times before it gets up to the bricks. I found that was the most difficult time to play. And after that set of four hits, then it goes back to more upright. So the ball speeds up when it hits a green row or a blue row, which are the top four rows. And you get points per brick hit, uh, one point for orange on the bottom, three for purple above that, five for green, and seven for blue on the top. So the versions of the game, so the breakout version is a 14 by 8 grid of rectangles near the top of the screen, with about six empty rows at the top for the ball to bounce around in and get bricks from the top. So when you clear all the bricks, it resets, so there's no max score in this game. The progressive game is a 14 by 4 row of bricks at the top, followed by four blank rows, and then 14 by 4 rows after that. As the game progresses, the rows of bricks will move down, and as they move to lower rows, their color changes. The green and blue bricks will change to the slower color bricks as they get lower. And there's no max score in this game, it'll just keep resetting after you clear all the bricks. In the double game, it's the same leg out as a regular breakout, but you have two paddles stacked on top of each other with four or five brick rows of spacing between them. When you serve a ball, one starts from the center of the screen as normal, but as soon as you return that one, a second ball gets served. For as long as you have two in play, the point values are doubled. When you miss one, the point values go back to normal, and when you miss the other one, it'll wait for you to serve again. If you clear the bricks, this game will only reset twice, so it does have an ending, and therefore a maximum score. Cavity is the same as regular breakout, except there are two 2x2 two two holes in the green rows of bricks, in each of which a ball is bouncing around. When you clear out a path to one of those cavities, the ball will, will be released into play. You earn double points if two are in play, and triple if all the balls are in play. This game also only resets twice, so again, there's a maximum score to this game. So this is a paddle game. There are not many paddle games that I remember for the 8-bits. Paddles were included with the 2600, but not the 800. Well, for that matter, joysticks weren't included with the 800 either. But I had a 2600 previously, so I had paddles. But I don't remember them hooking up to my 8-bits very often. This is a good candidate for a main cab, as it uses the uh, paddles and option select and start only, so there's no keyboard control needed for this game. Interestingly, the way MAME does its paddle emulation is by a mouse. So, oddly, if you do the two-player game in this and you move the mouse up and down, you can control that. You can control player two's paddle using 
up and down mouse movements. So select chooses the game variation. Option chooses the number of players from 1 to 8. So if you have four sets of paddles on your original Atari hardware, you can play eight people. And then start begins the game. So the gameplay itself, I found the paddle emulation is not very good. Well, I just couldn't control the mouse very well. It's not that the emulation itself is bad, but I didn't find it very easy to use the mouse as a direct paddle replacement. I don't have my meme cabinet built yet, but I definitely will get a spinner to try this in the meme cab. I don't know if there's a problem with like mouse acceleration on the machine I was using. It's because it seemed like it would jump several pixels or, or not move when I was moving the mouse. Like it would get stuck for a few pixels and then it would kind of catch up. So a quirk of the game is that if any portion of the paddle hits the ball, it'll deflect upwards. Even if the even if you hit the top of the ball with the bottom, like say left corner of the paddle, when the ball is all but left the screen, it'll still get deflected back up. So if you can somehow race the paddle over and hit any portion of the ball, it'll go back up. Also, another quirk, if you hit the ball up and it knocks a brick down and returns downward and would cross a brick going down, it does not get, it does not remove those bricks. It just passes through them. However, if you hit the ceiling and then the ball moves down, it does remove the bricks when it's moving down that way. Some technical details of the game. This is really simple usage of player missile graphics. The paddle is a quad width player and it looks like the missile is used for the ball. I wasn't sure if this was a text mode using redefined character set graphics or if it was graphics 7. So I actually I broke into the monitor of the Atari 800 Mac X that I was using to run this one and I found the display lists. So I looked at or I alluded to the display lists in episode 1, but they're programs for the Antic processor that generate the background display. So each enter- entry in the display list is responsible for drawing a certain number of scan lines on the screen. Uh, because we're you know we're in the days of like 16k RAM being a lot of RAM, uh, the designers were concerned to make graphics modes just use the minimum that you needed to do the job. So you have all these different graphics modes available. There's six text and eleven graphics modes. The text modes use either 20 or 40 bytes per line, and they can generate eight or 16 scan lines worth of vertical space. The graphics modes used either 10, 20, or 40 bytes per line depending on the resolution and could generate one, two, four, or eight scan lines worth of vertical space. You could mix modes on one screen to get just what you wanted for the minimum amount of memory. So you can mix graphics and text on the same screen. So looking at the display list, they're using graphics 6 for the playfield, which is the 160 by 96 two-color mode. Each row of bricks is two pixels high, followed by one pixel height of blank space. The neat thing is they're using blank lines in the display list to create spaces between the rows. So Antic has this, essentially a no-op command in the display list that just put, puts blank rows in the display, but this doesn't take up any memory. So in the memory, the frame buffer looks like it's contiguous, but on the output, you get these blank rows in between. So looking at the display list, there are 32 possible rows of bricks, and there's a line for text, and there's some more blank space under that for the paddle to go back and forth. So because they're using blank lines in the display list, the green borders have to be drawn using uh, player missile graphics. Otherwise, there'd be blank lines in the green borders as well. So players and missiles are overlays on the background, and they're, regardless reg- they're drawn regardless of the background mode. So they can even be drawn in the overscan areas outside the normal playfield. Because they're using graphics 6, there's only two colors, so that means they're using display list interrupts to change the background color for the rows. 
So DLIzer interrupts tr triggered by Antic while it's drawing the last scan line of the row of pixels it's currently drawing. So this triggers some, something called a non-maskable interrupt in 6502, which is a way to preempt the currently running code. So the regular program, uh, program code is going along, doing whatever it's doing, and then blam, it gets an interrupt. So the interrupt routine gets called, then interrupt does its work, then it has to restore the state of the 6502 so that the regular program doesn't know that anything has happened. So this is kind of fun. It takes me back to the times when I was looking at 6502 stuff and trying to, you know, crack copy protection and thinking about designing my own games back when I was, you know, a teenager. It prompted me to write that hex editor again. I told the story, I think, in, the, in episode zero, I think, when I wrote a hex editor in Atari Basic. And now I've got, I've kind of got this framework in Python that I've hacked around with. So, yeah, just for nostalgia reasons, I'm really having fun kind of writing this little editor just to look back at the old 6502 code and how they stored the player missile graphics and character set redefinitions in binary form. So, yeah, I'll probably continue doing these little technical sections just because I find it fun. It reminds me of the old days. So in terms of my memories of this game, I don't remember ever playing Super Breakout on the 800. I remember playing Breakout on the 2600, but I don't think I ever had it on the 8-bits. I certainly remember playing it in the arcades. Now why I'm excited about this game is it's clearly it's a good game for kids, because it's easy to understand and the controls are simple. There's no violence or themes to explain, so I'm definitely going to put this on my main cab, and this will be one of the first games I introduce to my kids. So my high score, well, it's a really fun, addictive game. It's sort of in the same way that Tetris is addictive in the 80s, or Angry Birds or Cannibals are one of those simple games we now get on our phones. You know, games that you can play without reading a manual or spending a time studying and kind of just pick up and play. I mostly play just the regular version of Breakout, and I got 332, which is, I think it might be in the good range. So when you get a high score, when you complete the game, it sort of gives you a it puts up an adjective to describe how well it think you did. And a lot of my games ended in oops, which is, I think, below 100. So 332, that was my first good score. So the Atari Age High Score Club did do Super Breakout. The last time, I think they may have done it multiple times. The last time was in July 2013, which is High Score Club number 10, round 12. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Atari Age user Xylon got a score of 1301 on Breakout and 2743 on Progressive. And Atari Age user Mekong got 2583 on Double and 2634 on Cavity. So some really good players. In terms of modern updates, I've never really played Arkanoid or any of those more uh, Super Breakout kind of games with you know power-ups and stuff. But after really enjoying Super Breakout, I think I'm going to have to go back and try it. So that's it for Super Breakout. Next episode, we're going to talk about Space Invaders, and we'll finish off the magazines of 1980. So be sure to check out Ferg and his 2600 Game by Game podcast for this for the contest that I'm sponsoring. To close out this episode, I'm going to try something new. When I, I'm going to start looking for SAP music to play as the outro to the episode. I found this on the Atari SAP Music Archive, which is at asma.atari.org I'll put a link to that in the show notes Red Barchetta is a great song one of my favorite Rush tunes I guess technically in Italian it's pronounced Barchetta but Getty pronounced it Barchetta so that's the name of the song Red Barchetta 
it was based on a short story called Nice Morning Drive. And so the author of Nice Morning Drive, Richard Foster, eventually got into contact with Neil Peart, and they went on a motorcycle ride that was that has a nice write-up, so I'll include that in the show notes as well. So if you're a Rush fan at all, you should check out those links. Here's Steve Johnson with his SAP version of Red Barchetta by Rush.
the Star Raiders review was excellent. I learned a few things I can apply when playing it on the 5200, so I'm looking forward to future reviews. And my neighbor's cutting his lawn right now. Just the kind of background noise you need for a podcast.